Hi and welcome to the 16th episode of Om Philosophers Liv och Tankar, a pod where we discuss philosophy and philosophical development with current philosophers. I'm Fredrik Eriksson, liaison librarian in philosophy here at Lund University, and by my side, as per usual, I have Martin Jansson, associate professor uh, in theoretical philosophy here at Lund University. Uh, today we have a, a special guest, uh, Professor Thomas Schmidt who's a, a professor at the Humboldt University in Berlin and most known for his views in normative ethics and uh, meta-ethics. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. And as one of our ambitions is to let our guests talk about their philosophical development, a good idea might be to start from the very beginning and how you remember your first philosophical thoughts. Well, I'm not exactly sure what would count as a proper philosophical thought, but um, in school I was really interested in the sciences, physics, biology, astronomy, all those things really concerned me a lot. But there was, I, I remember a point of time, maybe I was around 10, 12, 13, I don't exactly know when that was, when I really got upset about not properly understanding how I, as a person, as an agent, as a, you know, deciding subject, fits into that very picture of the world, which seemed to be to be so so natural mm. uh, as in uh, properly painted by the natural sciences that sounds a bit grandiose but i really yeah, was does, con- i really does. was i really was concerned about that. I, I never was religious no so i couldn't resort to that uh, and um but you couldn't see yourself as a part of the natural uh, biological world well yeah i mean You're ultimately i'm yeah. now now i'm not troubled by those sorts no, of things no. anymore at all but back then you know the thought of Hypothetically, of course, cutting oneself into pieces and not finding the pineal gland, you know, the eye or whatever it is that mm. one sort of thinks at the age of 10 would need to be there, in all, apart from all this liberal, liberally greasy stuff. Yeah. Um, it did deeply trouble me. Was that something that stayed with you as you grew old? No, not at all. Actually, I mean, I, that disappeared, luckily, and so I happily continued to do science. Okay. Uh, and in fact, at, at university, I, I uh, started studying physics. So that I, I wanted to become the the physicist, or continue to remain the physicist, which I was really oh, I quite for a long time during school. And I, but also always, always was sort of interested in not only physical, uh, natural science sort of questions, but in those questions, or in the fact that there are questions which that's cannot answer. Uh, and so I decided, and uh, people told me that that has to do something with philosophy. So I did philosophy as a minor subject. What kind of questions were was that? That's the truth is, well, those fundamental things about nature of time and space, I suppose, yeah. and about metaphysical things beyond, you know, measurable stuff. I mean, that, that rough and ready way in which one tries to carve up one's intellectual uneasiness is when, when one is 18 or 19 and needs to decide on which subjects to academically embark on. All right. What sort of made you pursue philosophy rather than physics as a PhD? Well, in my undergraduate studies, I started with physics as a major and philosophy as a minor. Yeah. After half a year, I discovered that physics... Well, they actually, they were, I'm allowed to talk about contingent reasons for choices as well. <laughs> yes. So here's what happens. Physics, studying physics in Germany is about studying mathematics plus X. 
uh, e.g. x equals chemistry, x equals all sorts of other things. And x's tended to start at 8 o'clock in the morning, as opposed to the mathematics lectures, which were at 11. Uh, that was part of the reason for which I was much more attending the mathematics. I mean, there, there is an intellectual story about that as well. I found mathematics just much more fascinating on the academic level than the physical part of it. Plus, I found philosophy more fascinating than I had thought. So I then continued to do mathematics and philosophy all the way up to my magister, yeah. with both as majors, but writing the major thesis in philosophy. And after that, I did my PhD right. in philosophy. What was your magister on on in metaphysics, or have you progressed by then? To no, actually, I, that all that that story I told at the outset didn't in any way do much with regard to my philosophical development in right. the first couple of years. So, so, what concerned you then? I I mean, from the third year onwards, I I became politically active in in student political movements, and I was began to care about or more to care about than I had before about normative questions, and I was hanging out with a number of people being more interested in moral and political philosophy than in theoretical philosophy, somehow being driven by the idea that philosophy has to be able to help us making the world a better place. Mm. Uh, and that what got me on into, into practical philosophy. I uh, um, but I suppose the, the affection for mathematics and formalism and clarity led to me then being very keen on trying to uh, figure out the extent to which, and hope for quite a bit of extent to which, one can sort out matters in practical philosophy by using formal techniques. So what I did for a while is decision theory and game theory with the hope of uh, being able to say something really important and true and provable, or at least you know demonstrably yeah. interesting about uh, rationality. That was what's happened in my magister thesis. Yeah. Uh, and uh, about justifiability of norms. So I did formal contractarian theory in my PhD dissertation. Most of our listeners probably don't know formal contractarian theory, so what does that involve? Well, the idea of contractarianism is if you want to justify whatever it is that you're out to justify, let's say a state, yeah. a government, a norm, uh, imagine whatever it is you want to justify is not there. You know, consider yourself in a state in which the whole thing you want to justify is absent, and ask yourself, and not only yourself, but all those other people who would be involved in the state in which the thing was there, whichever type of thing we're going to establish together. Suppose we had no state. What's the state we would agree on establishing and maintaining? Suppose there was no moral order. What, if any, is the very structure of the moral order which we would, you know, sitting around the campfire, as it were, discussing matters, you know, without having them established them first, right. would agree on, on doing. So that's the, the normative basic idea of contractarianism, I suppose. Uh, and the idea of bringing in formal techniques at that point is that when there is a formal theory or an area with different formal theories about rational individual and rational collective choice, that's decision theory. And the thought is that one might use those sorts of things in getting to more precise and better justifiable answers as to what those individuals in that uh, campfire situation, which I described, would uh, would agree on. I see. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm of course, I mean, many people have done that. Uh, arguably, implicitly, even people in the tradition, and Hobbes' contractarianism, 
And the one which Thomas Hobbes in his Leviathan proposed can be and has been reconstructed using formal techniques of that sort. But in the 20th century, John Rawls is particularly famous for having done this uh, with other premises. And David Gautier is another okay. exponent of that sort of um, theoretical. So what was the sort of um, main theme or, or sort of focus of study of your dissertation from this perspective then? It tends to justify moral and political norms and institutions with reference to rational choice and game theory. Okay. Uh, that was the, uh, is there, the, what's the extent to which that's possible? And I ended up uh, with a rather negative result uh, coming to the conclusion that those instruments in that, those areas are not very well suited for actually helping us to arrive at substantial normative conclusions. What they might help us, and indeed I became quite fascinated in that for a while, rather modeling uh, the ways in which institutions, norms and other things might have evolved over, the, over time, but which is more in a descriptive explanatory project than one involved in actually trying to justify normative conclusions about legitimacy, justifiability, justice, and so forth. Um, so, so when you conclude your dissertation, were, were you sort of finished with, or did you feel finished with, with that topic, or did you? I was a bit disappointed, really. Uh, sort of, it was more, more due, to, due to external or self-imposed constraints. I had it to hand it in, not having arrived at those Great. positive results, yeah. which I had hoped for when embarking on uh, the project of making use of those formal methods in the first place. Really. Right. So what did that result in, in, in terms of what you did next? Did you feel that, well, now that I'm finished with that, I can continue the project in a new form? Or did you want to move on to something else? What, what did you do? The question of justifiability concerned me all along. So for the extent to and the way in which normative principles, moral norms, political institutions can be justified was always something concerning me a lot from my as it well ultimately failed attempt to make strong use of formal techniques uh, I went over to metaethics uh, and, and was got more interested in foundational issues as what are we to say about the extent to which the idea makes sense that there is some th there is a question about for instance political justice normative correctness which has an answer which we can be underst uh, understanding ourselves as how to discover or to justify or are we rather to have a more or less uh, let's say objectivist perspective of the very very project we engage in when we in uh, justify moral judgments See. Sorry, uh, but I'm just guessing. It is sort of a meta-ethical question, I guess, right? Right. Of what, uh, if the truth is out there or not, uh, regarding what, what, how you can justify sort of a ethical claim. I would like to be able to say that it is possible and makes a lot of sense uh, to aim at discovering moral truths. Yeah. Without thereby buying into the picture that those moral truths, as it were, metaphysically yeah. live somewhere out there behind the clouds, right, yeah. in, the, in the offing, and yeah. we sort of just sort of need to metaphysically transcend our, you know, current perspective in order to yeah. grasp those guys. Yeah. That sounds very odd. And yeah. the picture that it's those guys... It's very interesting to, to, to hear. I mean, there is, one, there is one analogy which always fascinated me, and that actually 
goes back in a way to my, my courses of study in undergraduate times. I mean, think of mathematics, right? Let's say, for instance, the truth, uh, which it is, it seems that 7 plus 4 equals 11. Uh, that doesn't live anywhere out there as well, does it? And where do numbers live? What do they eat? Right? How do re they reproduce? They're all bullshit questions, of course. Why is that so? Because they are not part of the natural world, right? Uh, and um, and th it wouldn't make sense that before humans were around, 7 plus 4 actually wasn't 11. It always was. Right, even though yeah. that very truth wasn't somehow lying around uh, in the backing. So in mathematics, there is an equally, sort of equally some kind of uneasiness, mm -hmm. if you feel the uneasiness about, well, you know, for, for one thing, we do strongly believe, don't we, that there are objective mathematical truths which are independent from our, you know, when we say 7 plus 4 equals 11, we don't express our mathematical sentiments or have some affection to numbers or whatever it mm -hmm. is, but we aim at stating something true and in this case we actually strongly believe that we successfully do so mm. even though the picture is not that those guys live out there somewhere uh, why couldn't it be the same in morality that, you know that that's and I, I find that a very interesting analogy right. uh, both in mathematics and in morality I, I would sort of tend to flirt with the idea that we can make sense of this the, the relevant sort of objectivity without any sort of strong and implausible and somehow mysterious metaphysical import, but you know, without having to resort to views about those facts, as it were, somehow lying out there. But, but would you say that like ethical truths would be truth no matter if man existed or not? Because uh, it I depends on how you exactly spell out that claim. Hmm. Uh, suppose. So if you say something like, suppose uh, 200 years ago, or whenever it was exactly, uh, or what I mean, uh, people started strongly and luckily, relatively successfully, uh, to abandon the idea that slavery is wrong. Suppose, kind of factually, the world went on differently. The view that slavery is all right hmm. would have persisted. Would that entail that slavery is in fact not wrong, according to you? No, I hope. And so therefore there is some, as we would say in philosophy, counterfactual independence mm -hmm. between whatever we find the correct moral answer to, to actual developments in the world from, from moral beliefs. The question is how strong that is, but I think it's fairly strong. So how, how would you spell out there being... Um moral truths uh, when they're not sort of out there uh, uh, for us to grab? Well, I think the notion of the truth predicate does not necessarily have to be understood in it as a, as Crispin Wright has called that, a, a metaphysically heavyweight concept. Right. So the whole idea that if the notion of truth, notion of truth is only appropriate where the picture is in place that there are those things which might be true or false, as it were, on the left-hand side. The right-hand side are the facts, yeah. and truth is about somehow, you know, a match between this mm -hmm. and that. I think that picture is at least inappropriate in mathematics, as I've been indicating. Yeah. Uh, pretty much maybe in the same way in morality. Right. And I'm not even sure whether it's appropriate in the, in the hard sciences, even though, of course, there it has much more appeal. Right. So, but, but, I, but the truth is, I don't. I'm not a. I'm not a truth theorist. I don't have any. Any. I don't have any 
made untruths here, but I sort of more or less rely on the fact that there are other people working in the field right. who have minimalist and oliflationist truth predicates with which one can work in order to get those things right. off the ground. But when you say that there are, if I understand it correctly, there are moral truths to aim for, is that a okay characterization? What does aiming for them mean if they're not? Exactly. There? The question is the question is really what does aiming for mean? What is yeah. what is? And I, I mean, ultimately, I think the the, uh, the 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 sort of trivial but important point is first from the fact that I believe that one that this and that is one should do morally speaking do this and that is of course does not follow that one should morally speaking do this and that, right? Uh, and it doesn't. It would even if we all, we the three of us agreed on this and that being morally the case, is of course wouldn't follow. So from the fact that somebody or a group of people believes something, it doesn't follow that it's the case. To that extent, it always makes sense to be, to some degree, uncertain <laughs> about what's morally the case. In parentheses, those anti-objectivists often believe that objectivists somehow are those stamping their feet on the ground claiming to learn the world truth and being intolerant and all the rest of it. I think objectivism is uh, just the opposite. It's tailor-made for being open to the idea of moral error just because from the fact that I believe something to be the case in morality as well as with regard to the weather, it doesn't follow that you know we should ought to do this or that or that the weather is in this and that way pretty much as opposed, for instance, to relativists. Relativists don't have so much room for moral error, to the extent to which they say something along the lines, whether or not one ought to do this or that just depends on the norms of the culture. Well, yeah, and then in order to figure out what you ought to do, you need to look at the norms. That might be difficult, but in principle, it should be relatively easy to arrive at an answer. I think actually morality is much more complicated than that. So we should much be much more humble, and objectivism of the sort of in sketching is much more space for that sort of epistemic humbleness, as it were, and for toleration, because toleration, of course, is an objective value and not only a relative one. Uh, so you defended your, your um, uh, PhD in 1998? That's right. And, and since it wasn't actually a defense. That was still the time when we had an examen rigoroso, two hours being questioned on all sorts of things, so proper examinations. Okay. Not but just the thesis? Not at all the thesis. It wasn't no. all about the thesis. Okay. It was, the thesis was just read. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I see. So, um, so I was wondering about if there, been, if there has been any... What have been the major transitions in your thought? Uh, so you, you've been talking about some form of objectivism here. Were you always leaning towards that? Or has there been any other major transitions in where you have felt compelled by one position at one time and then later on moved on to a, a, a very different position? Or what kinds of transitions have there been in your, your philosophical development? I mean, as I indicated before, uh, one, as it were, methodological transition was from being hoping for uh, and being positive about using those formal techniques right. in order to get substantial questions yeah, yeah. properly tackled. That happened during the PhD that I was getting less sure, yeah, to yeah. put it mildly, yeah. about the extent of that. Uh, after the PhD, uh, I 
for maybe for contingent reasons, because there was a professor in which, uh, in a course of which I attended then, who was in a very strong sense a Wittgensteinian. I was a bit under the spell of that, uh, and under the idea of maybe giving up the project of theory in the strong sense in philosophy at all, and ending up in doing more piecemeal, that very describing language games type of project that that characteristic for the later later Wittgenstein. But then then after that, two things happened. First, I um, I wanted to. I wanted to come back to do something which is which is theory. <laughs> I wanted to have something like a methodological controlled tackle of those questions that I'm really concerned about. And secondly, apart from those meta-ethical issues which I've been dealing with in my habilitation thesis after the PhD, I sort of more and more remember that I it was actually first order normative questions, not meta-ethical questions about objectivity, justifiability, and all the rest of it, which I which got me into practical philosophy. So I moved back from those abstract things more to normative things. And those those two things together uh, got me, and that's maybe what I'm still most interested in, uh, somewhere between normative ethics and applied issues on the one hand side and meta-ethical issues on the other, into being concerned about the extent to which Morality is an area in which we can hope for anything which can be seriously called a theory in the first place. So that's that's where I am now. Okay. Uh, I'm happy to talk about that in more detail about that, just to give you a brief. Okay. But, but please do. So so your current res- research is on, on that? Right. Yeah, okay. So, so. Uh, there are a number of different ways of thinking about that question. Here is Here is one. If you think, if you want to know what's morally right or wrong, if that's your desire, then one answer to that question or type of answer could be a principle. No, For instance, an action is right or wrong. Sorry, an action is right if and only if, and because it is, buff. Then comes one thing. For instance, uh, an action is right if and only if. Uh, its consequences are at least as good as the consequences of all alternative actions. That's one well-known principle or type of principle known as consequentialism. The consequences decide what matters. Uh, consequences have always, or many consequentialists have always advocated their overall principle as being attractive on moral grounds, but also on structural grounds. It's sort of easy. It's compelling. You know, morality is about making the world a better place. Therefore, you ought to do, morally speaking, whatever has the best consequences. That, is, that therefore doesn't follow by my lights, but that's that's one way of getting yourself into seeing consequentialism to be attractive. I never found that compelling on all sorts of grounds. Um, so the question is, what alternative right. principles are there? Here is one. You ought to do the right thing. I think that's true, and I think everybody agrees that's true. Yeah. But it's just not very informative, right? So the question is, is there anything between a maximally informative principle, which is just allow me to be so blunt, false, namely consequentialism, mm-hmm. on the one hand side, and a true but maximally uninformative principle, which is just do the right thing on the other hand side? Let's play with a couple of examples. For instance, let, let sort of middle-level principles everybody knows. Take, you ought to keep your promises. Is that true? I I would say so, yeah. 
are. You ought to keep every promise, even if you pass somebody who is in urgent need of help and dying. Uh, you know, you're the only person around to help. Uh, you have no way of calling the person you promised to meet at the movies at eight because you don't have any cell phone or whatever it is. Yeah, I would have to right. evaluate. Yeah, exactly. So, so the principle: every promise ought to be kept is false, strictly speaking. Then, you know, people come along and say, well, I didn't mean it in that way. When I said one ought to keep one's promises, I, of course, didn't mean to say that the principle doesn't have exceptions. So it's a blunt principle. So let's, let's then modify the principle. Let's say, you know, every promise ought to be kept except uh, for exceptions. Well, you know, then we are moving towards being relatively uninformative again. Yeah. <laughs> right? Or you ought to keep a promise, except for cases in which it's false to keep a promise. Then we are really maximally uninformative. And here you see the problem. You can either go wishy-washy and say, well, you know, by and large, you should keep your promises. But, you know, there are exceptions, in which case you, by my lights, haven't said anything clear at all. Or you somehow have to do something else about that principle. And it's not obvious what that could be. You could modify it. You ought to keep your promises, except in situations, and then comes a massive list of possible exceptions. You could try to go for that, but um, it's quite difficult. Uh, is that something you're going for? Or? Uh, I, I'm, I, I would be more happy with another move, which is say, just go, go away from the ought. Uh, let's go for a, for a principle which has a weaker, weaker moral claim. For instance, if you promise to do something, then you've got a reason to, to a reasonably strong moral reason to perform, to do that. So you sort of stick with a universal quantification, but you weaken the... I weaken the moral claim, yeah. exactly. Uh, so in that case, I've been just mentioning, for instance, uh, that would still be true, right? But then, uh, first, it's even unclear whether those principles are, are true. Consider promises of morally false acts. Consider promises under duress. Uh, of course, you might say, well, those are not promises. But then you need to have some, you need to tailor-made your promise notion in order to exclude those cases. Or else you might actually try to arrive at a principle of the form you ought, uh, if you promise something and if not these and these and these specific circumstances obtain, then you've got a reason to keep it. So they sort of, those exceptional cases are more overseeable than the ones to, to ought, oughts, right? But the other problem, of course, is once you've got that, then you've got other principles of the same sort. If a person suffers, then uh, that's the reason to help. Again, there are exceptions. If you're in a Sadomaso studio and there's somebody suffering, it's maybe not a reason to help because that's what they wanted in the first place, right? But then again, those are exceptions which one might build in the principle, right? But suppose one has done that, then you've got these two principles, something. And there are cases in which you ought to, you know, there's a reason to keep a promise, but there's also a reason to help. And now you need to figure out what to do. Well, you need to do, of course, the, the right thing, which is trivial. And you need to do the thing which is supported by the stronger moral consideration. It's also relatively trivial to say that, not entirely. But we do still don't know what that is. So it would be nice to have, again, a principle helping you to decide you know, which one of those is, is more weighty. Are those available? Open question. Uh, one of the heroes uh, I, I'm very keen on is a person called David Ross. He was a, moral, a British moral philosopher of the 20th century. Uh, and he wrote a book, he wrote a number of books, but uh, maybe his most important book is called The, the Right and the Good. 
There he proposed a view according to which there are prima facie duties. Uh, another term for that we should nowadays use is moral reason. So there is the prima facie duty to keep one's promise, the prima facie duty to help, prima facie duty to, you know, there are seven to five of those things. Uh, That's an exact count. Yes, he starts with seven and then he says, oh, well, no, two of those can actually be reduced, which is why they're in. he ends up doing five, having five, which is still a lot. I mean, consequentialists only have one, right? They say you have to maximize the consequence, full stop. Ross says, well, not a bad idea, but you stopped looking too early. You forgot other things, right? Because there are a number of other things as well. Um, and then he says, well, of course, these things can conflict. And what happens if they do? I try to figure out some principles, but I, I didn't arrive at any. Right. People are very unhappy about that view because it's not very helpful mm. in terms of making decisions. But suppose it was correct. You know, I always thought when reading Ross, it's better to have a view which is uninformative than to have a false one. You know, consider, to take one analogy, the case of humor. Mm. There are, as we, I hope, all agree, objectively funny jokes. But are there... Are there? Yeah, really? sure. Is I mean, you know, if somebody doesn't laugh about a joke which is really objectively funny, you think that person has the wrong sense of humor. But anyway, yeah, leave that as um, That was funny, though. But there, exactly, that's the point. Self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, but there are no principles of humor, right? There are no principles saying a joke is funny under those conditions, yeah. and if you modify that, then it's not funny anymore. And we sort of, that doesn't get us to sort of think, well... You know, to that extent, we haven't properly arrived at the proper theory of humor anymore. So why, you know, why couldn't morality be as humor in that respect, mm. in being so? That's that's something which Ross aimed at, and a person called Jonathan Dancy who went even further than Ross is saying there are not even those principles of prima facie duties, but no principles at all. Why couldn't it just be the case that morality is so complex that um, we are not able? in a lifetime, as it were, to arrive at reasonably substantial principles. Uh, and therefore, we should refrain from providing them uh, because, you know, otherwise we might rather lead people astray mm. on matter of importance. And people are actually better in deciding by themselves uh, and weighing, you know, conflicting considerations against each other than uh, doing wrong things based on false principles. That's the thought. There are exceptions to that. I mean, when you teach children promises, for instance, what you say is, of course, not well. You know, if you promise something, then by and large, you should keep it. But on the other hand, you know, always figure out whether there is something morally more important to do. You, what you say is you always ought to keep your promise until the age of nine, maybe, or eight. And afterwards, I mean, I actually asked my son recently. He's now 11. By the way, you know that that was false when I taught you that, don't you? He said, yes, of course I do. Mm -hmm. And then I told Beth, then I didn't mean to tell you anything true. I just wanted to educate you with regard to understanding the point of promises. And he was happy about that description. I was very proud about that, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the same is true for, you know, you ought never cross the red light, which, of course, is false. Yeah. But we don't mean that as an assertion. We mean that as a strategic speech act to get our kids you know, better in crossing roads without being run over by cars. We don't mean that as a legal claim, nor do we mean you always keep your promise as a moral claim, because as a moral claim, it would be just false. Right, so that's, and, and so and the, 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 the upshot, the general interesting question is, how, how, how many, as it were, or what, what, how strong are the principles? 
how, how, how much are we to conceive of morality as an area covered by principles, i.e. as an area where we can sensibly aim at providing something which can be called theory. Hmm. Uh, that's, that's something which very much concerns me. I see. On the topic of, of um, uh, rules and, and um, uh, principles, we have a, a student question. Yeah, we have a student question, <clears throat> and it reads something like this. Many claim that, according to Kant, to do the right thing is to act out of duty. You argue that, for Kant, to do the right thing does not depend on the will of the agent in that way, but merely on whether the act is in accordance with what duty demands. But if so, what importance does the will play, if any, with respect to moral value, either of the act or the agent? Mm-hmm. Now, just to explain maybe the background of that question a Please bit, uh, Kant has this distinction between acts which are, as he calls that, in accordance with duty and those which are not. One of his prime examples for acts which are not in accordance but contrary to duty are, as he calls them, false promises, are promises which are being made in the knowledge of it being the case that the person promising will never, in fact, do the promised act. So I promise something while knowing that I'll never do it. That's contrary to duty, according to Kant. As opposed to, and his prime example is, uh, a a, a um, shopkeeper in Königsberg, where Kant lived, we suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, and the shopkeeper uh, makes fair prices, does not, as I think the English translation of the passage is, does not overprice his customers, uh, but not because he realizes that this is what's morally called for, in Kant's term, not out of duty, not out of another Kantian term, respect for the moral law, but out of self-interest. Because he knows if he overprices, then those guys won't come back and that'll be harmful for his business later on. So he does the right thing for, as it were, morally not very outstanding motives. I think that's a clear indication that according to Kant, Doing the right thing is one thing, uh, and the motive or the intention with which that very thing was done is quite another thing. Uh, and I, to that extent, I don't really agree to the presupposition of the question that many people claim something different. What's true, however, is that Kant said uh, only acts which are not only done in accordance with duty, but also out of duty, i.e. out of the motive of doing as required by morality, have, and that's a quote again, actual moral worth. Agents are only praiseworthy uh, when they act out of respect for the moral law. That claim has struck many as being very implausible. Schiller is the most famous one who, who was put back by this claim. He has this poem, which I can't recite in English, but it's something along the lines of, you know, I'd really like to help my friends <laughs> But sadly, I only do it out of friendship and with pleasure. Uh, and I should actually, given Kant's claim, start hating my friends in order to help them out of friends of duty and only then doing something with the shoe, which is really more morally worthwhile. That wasn't verbatim Schiller, but that's roughly the point. Yeah. You know, to take, you know, to ridicule, of course, mm, of course. that Kantian view. And, um, and he has a point, doesn't he? Because, I mean, given that Kantian view, if I helped Uh, if I saved my son's life out of love or out of, you know, that sort of 
parental affection hmm. that wouldn't be an act with actual moral worth. But I think Kant can sort of be helped and, and should be modified. And parts of what he says can be read in the sense that he believed that, that what actually matters is not so much the actual motive, but the fact that the person would have performed the very same act even if that actual motive wouldn't have been there. To take that example, even if I hate my son, which is not the case, I would have nevertheless helped him and saved him, not so much out of love, but out of whatever it is, right? Uh, so for one thing, uh, Kant distinguishes, and rightly so, I think, between performing a right action in which can be done for appropriate or inappropriate motives, uh, and the question of whether the act was right or not, from the question of whether the agent is particularly praiseworthy, uh, which typically has to do much with motives. Um, but those are just two different questions which Kant separates himself. And he overdoes it a bit with regard to the claim about what has actual moral worth, as I've just been trying to indicate, but can be sort of helped there uh, to quite some extent. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, I really enjoyed this. And I also want to thank Lam Studio for the possibility to record our part there. Thank you very much, Peter. <laughs> <laughs>